Welcome to Food and Loathing, your weekly dose of Las Vegas culinary news, nostalgia, and other assorted nonsense. I'm your host, Al Mancini, joined for today's episode by Rich Johnson, our producer and the man on the control panel. We have um, had a crazy week and holidays and all of that fun behind us right now. So we're going to mix things up a little bit. Primarily, this is normally where we start about what we've done. Well, I was out of town. I was in Palm Springs. I went to some interesting restaurants, but none of which interesting enough for me to tell you about right now. So um, we're going to skip right over this segment. Rich, did you do anything super exciting this week? I never left my house. Never left your house. Okay. Um, since you last heard from me, I did do some some interesting brunch dine arounds, and I did dine around over at um, the Venetian Palazzo. They have a lot of new vegan dishes at Mott 32. I would encourage you to go check those out um when yeah some other things actually dana roselli and sean McAllister did a big segment on that dine around that i did since i don't have a lot of time to get to it i'm gonna send you over to their um, podcast and check that one out vegas so, revealed vegas revealed i singed on it thank you so much rich for that <laughs> i'm here for you um i also did again I, I hit resorts world i tried their new caviar bar which was a lot of fun um i really really liked the crudo the 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 pasta was really good and of course i enjoyed the caviar so resorts were coming together with their second group of restaurants opening up right now i did go somewhere but i'll save it for the next episode when i have time to expand and have rick uh, moonen uh, tell me what a, a peasant i am what you did wrong yeah okay. i went to harlow okay gina well, marinelli's brand new steakhouse in downtown summerlin Holiday. Okay. Cool. And I'll tell you why. Well, Next we will time. talk about that. We're, yeah, we'll skip over Harlow. We've only spe- spoken about them four weeks in a row, <laughs> yeah. I think, at this point. Um, right now, we do have a lot of show to get to. Um, first of all, one of the big pieces of news, and which will be the first thing that we do when we come back from this next segment, is going to be on the death of Chris Heron, a super influential and beloved um, chef here in Las Vegas. We will be talking to three good friends of his just about his life and his legacy and the hole that he's left behind here. Um, we'll get to another couple other pieces of news but first up it is currently hanukkah and to celebrate that we're going to have a conversation on what it means to keep kosher and the state of kosher dining this is food and loathing another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, happy Hanukkah. We are actually, as I understand it, I am not a practicing Jew, but uh, today is Friday, December 3rd when this drops, which is the morning after the fifth night of Hanukkah. But just to make sure, I brought some experts in to to um, tell me that I know what I'm talking about. But we're going to be talking right now all about what it means to um, to keep kosher in your diet and um, great places to eat kosher here in Las Vegas and really just a little bit of a primer in what it means to be kosher because for people who are not raised in the Jewish faith, many people don't understand what it means. Many of the people I went to law school with who were raised in the Jewish faith didn't seem to know what it meant anyway because I couldn't get a straight answer from most of them on what it meant to keep kosher. So now many, many years later, I am here with two experts in the field. We're coming to you from Kosher Chinglish, um, and I, you guys have all heard me speak quite a bit about Chinglish. It's a pair of restaurants over in Boca Park. One side is kosher, the other isn't. I'm here with the owner, who is going to explain a bit more about that momentarily. He is Ken Heck, the president of Heck Wealth Management and the managing partner in Chinglish Restaurant Group. Um, he is a conservative Jew who keeps kosher. 
sitting next to him right now is Rabbi, and I am going to mess this up. I mess up, I mess up Italian last names, and I'm Italian, so <laughs> bear with me. This is Rabbi Tzvi Bronstein. Got it. Oh, man, I feel so good about myself. Uh, born in Brooklyn, New York City, moved to Las Vegas in 2005. He is the Shabbat of UNLV. He became a kosher supervisor in 2007, and he is the kosher supervisor for Kosher Chinglish. And we will tell you what that means. Hopefully, by the end of this episode, you will know what that means. First of all, happy Hanukkah, gentlemen. I know it's not Hanukkah right now when we're recording, but I hope you accept that in the spirit, and I hope that I'm allowed to say it now. You definitely are. <laughs> Not declaring war on Hanukkah or anything by saying it at the wrong time. Happy Hanukkah to you, too. And it comes early this year. It does. Um, yeah, so it's all wrapped up by the time Christmas happens, but like well in advance. It starts uh, November 28th. So Cyber Monday, so, so, you know, Sunday night right before Cyber Monday. Okay. First candle, yes. Cool. Well, it seems like a great time to talk about what it means to keep kosher, because I know that some people who do not keep kosher year round do during the high holidays is my understanding that Hanukkah is one of the highest of the high holidays. But please correct me if I get anything wrong. Um, in the broad sense, gentlemen, first of all, how are you this fine morning? Beautiful. Doing very well. Um, I, I do want to correct. Um, Hanukkah is one of the more popular Okay. Jewish holidays, it is not considered one of the holiest holidays. So the high holidays are the New Year and, and the Day of Atonement, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And then there's a series of holidays behind it, including Simchas Torah. But Hanukkah is a festival of lights, and it is far and away the most popular okay. with the kids. Now, when that means remaining um, for, for people who are not kosher year round, but decide to be or choose to, to remain kosher during the holidays, is this a big one for that? I would say that for kosher purposes, Passover most probably gets the most people that are maybe not kosher observant the whole year. But for Passover, at least for the first days of the celebration, they will make the Seder, which is the ritual part of Passover. They will do that kosher for Passover, which is in, in kosher itself, a whole nother level of avoiding bread and leaven products. So I would, I would venture that the Passover holiday most probably attracts the highest observant of kosher followed by those high holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Okay. And then there is the Christmas holiday where all the Jews go to Chinese restaurants like <laughs> Ken's, right? Um, and that seems to be a very New York tradition. But, you know, when I wrote about Chinglish for um, for the Las Vegas Review Journal, I made it a point to be here on on Christmas Eve to cover that because that, that was a tradition among all of my Jewish friends in New York City, and it seems to have carried over here in Las Vegas. Absolutely. A, a lot of the people in Las Vegas come, well, most of the people come from somewhere else. And there's a lot of, of New Yorkers and a lot of uh, California people. And they certainly um, followed the tradition <clears throat> to, uh, to, to be out at Chinese food on, on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. I do recall that being made famous by Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan during her confirmation hearings. I was in the room when Senator <laughs> Lindsey Graham said, on this uh, Christmas Day, what were you doing? She said, well following the great tradition of my people and uh, going to Chinese restaurant. Nice. <laughs> Broke up the room. Before we get into specific rules of what it means to keep kosher or how one keeps kosher, could you explain what it means to keep kosher in a broad sense? So let's just start first with the literal translation of the word kosher. You know, today kosher has entered the English language where, you know, when something is not right, they'll say that smells non-kosher or something like that. But the literal translation of the word kosher translates as fit or, you know, fitting. So the Bible, the Old Testament, gives certain restrictions on dietary consumption, the separation, for example, of milk and meat, the particular animals that one may consume. So anything that fits the dietary restrictions of Jewish law would be considered, I'm keeping kosher, I'm trying to keep the biblical commandments of eating kosher food. And you, you, you talk about the Bible. Most of these, I believe, from my early Roman Catholic upbringing, um, these come from Deuteronomy, right? Correct. Is that one of the bigger books where Correct. it comes from? So it's, it's, it's in Deuteronomy, and it's in also in um, Leviticus, and those two specifically. Let's, let's take the, you know, I don't want to get too technical on everyone, mm -hmm. but the Bible says you shall not cook a kid in its mother's milk. 
kid in this case is referring to a goat. Mm-hmm. And back then, I guess that was a delicacy, taking the tough goat meat and cooking it in milk to soften the, the, the flavor of the meat. Goat is a tough, um, a tough meat, needs a stew-like or something right. like that. So using milk to make it softer. So the Bible says not to cook a kid. Today, if the Bible would be written, maybe said, you know, not to eat a cheeseburger. Right. And, yeah. and that's the way, the most common way of consuming milk and meat together. Uh-oh. And so it doesn't actually mean you can't cook the young goat in its own mother's milk. It simply means do not, it's, it's interpreted Correct. to mean do not mix dairy and meat. Correct. And that applies to all across the board. Dairy and meat. Right. As far as uh, pork and shellfish, uh, a popular. Tell me if it's a misconception uh, by non-Jews that that those are the, the rules that were born of pragmatism back then, because most pork was at the time just not good to eat if you didn't cook it forever and ever, and that became uh, codified. So very good, very good observation. The Bible obviously says to only consume animals that chew their cud and have split hooves. When we talk about animals, so the pig obviously has the split hooves, but it doesn't chew its cud. Many people, you know, trying to understand, you know, they, they've, they've found, you know, what you're referring to about pork being dangerous and, and unhealthy if it hadn't been cooked safely. And shellfish the same Correct. way, you, what time Correct. of year, how much, uh, the temp- water temperature. But, but at the end of the day, the, the traditional understanding would be, you know, horse meat as well, not to make anyone upset, but in the sense, the same exact the horse doesn't chew its cud, doesn't mm-hmm. have split hooves, hence rabbit, the same thing. I'm just trying to think of other so, meats that are out there that so are... So the horse is, uh, horse meat would not be kosher, correct. rabbit would not be kosher. Correct. You mentioned, Ken, that you've had kosher venison. I have. So venison can be kosher if you capture it the right correct. way. Correct. If it would be captured and slaughtered the right way, then venison, moose, deer, all of those, um, uh, and they all, you know, they all chew their cud and split their hooves. An interesting fact, giraffe is a kosher animal. <laughs> giraffe chews its cud and has split hooves, yeah. but you don't really find, I, I don't think it exists, kosher giraffe meat on the market. I mean, but, in, in Africa, there, there are certainly Jews in Africa, right? And they're, they're I mean, it's Middle East, very close, right? So correct. I'm sure <laughs> some of them got over there and were eating right. some giraffe. Well, from what I understand, it's also it's a very tough meat. From what yeah. I've heard from people, it's a very... But, but to answer Rich's question, it's not... It wasn't intended to be a health code. It's it's more of a prohibition and a reminder. One of the one of the translations of kosher is not just fitting; it's holy, but also separate. And a lot of the laws were meant, at least the way that I studied it when I was a young man, was it was intended to take this people and separate them from the pagans all around them and give them dietary rules that were different than everybody else's. Mm-hmm. In and fact, if they we, were healthy ones that helped you live longer, better yet. But but also even the the ritual we talked about before, uh, cooking a kid in its mother's milk, that was a fertility ritual from pagans at the time. Hmm. Wow. wow. Okay. Um, so we've touched on some of the big ones. We've touched on certain animals that you you just don't eat, um, certain things that you just don't mix. Um, I don't want to get too much into the minutia, but we, we also mentioned that a lot has to do with how the animals are caught, how the animals are killed, slaughtered, and butchered, I believe. So are all of those aspects, and are there any other big ones that people should know about, just so they properly understand so, when their friends say, I'm kosher? Right. So another, in, another kosher thing would be, when let's talk about for the fish, it's fins and scales. So a kosher fish would be one that has, most fish today have, you know, the fins. It's the scales that really separate the kosher fish from the non-kosher fish. So your catfish is not kosher. Your And most of the, you know, like you said, you refer to the lobster and the shrimp. And those don't either have the, the scales. Hence, they're not, you're not the kosher fish. The kosher fish, you got your salmon, you have your tuna, you have your whitefish, you have your, you know, Lots of flounder, you know, right. plenty of kosher fish out there with the fins and the scales. Okay. Another interesting aspect of kosher is the, and, the, and we can talk about this, is the, is the prohibition of consuming bugs. So a lot of the greens in the restaurants or in kosher homes, the vegetables are washed to ensure the removal of the, you know, the bugs. When you talk about lettuce or your cauliflower or your broccoli, those are all greens that do contain a certain amount of bugs. And though the kosher consumer is usually washing those um, to remove and, you know, making sure that those are bug free. Again, because bugs as well, I know today there's, you know, some kind of movements where people want to increase the protein by Mm -hmm. consuming grasshoppers or things. Believe it or not, the Bible does list some kosher grasshoppers. 
Uh, but, really? But that tradition hasn't really passed down to us what exact those species are. So today you really only find the Yemenite Jewish community does consume, not going to say everyone, but they, they right. have the tradition. They, some of them do consume grasshoppers. But My again, friend Brandon Powers, who made the grasshopper pizzas in the middle of our, um, our swarm, <laughs> I'm going to have to check with him, see what kind of grasshoppers he was using, <laughs> right. whether that was kosher. Right. <laughs> well, but, probably not, because it would be with cheese anyway. Right. So I don't know. That might yeah. make a whole <laughs> other... Uh, so is a grasshopper considered meat? I don't know. It's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds um, like a doctorate in the making for somebody right. at a rabbinical and, school. And by the way, this is this is if we're talking about cutting edge kosher. So this is to, just to keep the conversation, you know, more modern and, and up to yeah. date. You know, now the the lab grown meat mm-hmm. is that considered actual meat where you need to be separate from milk and meat? Wow. Some of the lab grown meat is is being grown from the cells of animals. So in, 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 in kosher law, then obviously that cell would have to come from an animal that was kosher so that anything that would be grown from it would be, you know, direct descendant, so to speak, of, of kosher yeah. right. meat. The, there was an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal this past week where Impossible is coming I out with the... I was just about to ask you because that's yeah. beef. That comes from beef, So right? the, the Impossible burger and the Impossible ground beef is certified kosher and it's parv, meaning it can go with dairy or with meat but the impossible just came out with impossible pork <laughs> oh, okay. and, and the article in the Wall journal was saying that that the rabbis don't want to even though it's it's kosher in the sense that this because there's no pork in it it's just pork yeah flavored they kind of guess t- twisting up their nose at the fact of giving quote-unquote kosher supervision to Pork yeah. Oh man, product. that is that is just fascinating. Absolutely, I had some kosher. I had some Impossible chicken nuggets yesterday, actually. So <laughs> Impossible is straight off the top of my mind right now. Um, but but here's the deal, and it probably wouldn't happen because you're going to mostly get Impossible in a vegan restaurant. But that being said. An impossible cheeseburger is kosher. Impossible cheeseburger is kosher. I, I, oh I, wow! I, we've had we've, we've you're blowing my mind here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we buy the impossible meat, then we put the real cheese on it. Oh. Well, I I can tell you as as a Jewish man who's been kosher my whole life, this isn't a a recent thing. The one time I had a a veggie burger with cheese on it, it just it tasted wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, tasted like sin. Huh? Well, no, it's just I've never had the meat and the creamy cheese together, and right. it oh, was yeah. just wrong <laughs> to me. I mean, and, just, and what Ken is saying is so true for many of us, because you know many of Americans, you know, they assume milkshake goes with hamburger, mm-hmm. and just as just a natural, you know. Yeah, team, right. and we don't. We just the thought of a milkshake with a burger is just. What like, about a McDonald's milkshake? Is there any real dairy in that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. No, 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 no. That might work. Um, Ken, because of the fact you're uniquely situated for my next question, because we're sitting in a kosher restaurant with wine on the wall. Next door, you have a wine bar that is not kosher, but it's associated, and we're going to talk a bit about that. But kosher wine is something that I've never quite understood why wine needs to be kosher. So could you explain what that means? Sure. So wine, everyone thinks is just grapes, but there are certain additives that that go into the winemaking process that come from animal. So a kosher wine will exclude that or be restricted to only kosher animals that, that went into that additive into the wine. Um, but the wines that we serve here at Kosher Chinglish to, to just go the next level are what's called Mevushal wines, which now my sommelier hat is flipping over right now, but um, it, they're, they're, it's almost like homogenized wine. And so what you're doing is you're, you're heating up the wine to a certain level. It makes sure there's, all the bugs are dead. It makes sure all the impurities are out. And then it, it gets brought back down to finish the aging process. Now... Mm-hmm. And the bug thing, there's, right? Exactly. (laughs) So the idea now is that you have a perfectly kosher wine that for many, many years tasted awful. And in Yiddish, we would say it tasted like dreck. It was terrible. (laughs) But it it was terrible. But in in the recent years, winemakers have gotten much better at it. And we have a wall full of wines that are, to me, very good. Um, It's harder and harder, though, to find a really good kosher wine when, when, when i talk about religious 
traditions, especially as someone who is whatever I am. But anyway, I don't know yet. Uh, but it, I, I always worry that I'm going to resort to stereotypes and in some way be insulting. So apologies in advance if that happens. But why is Manischewitz always associated with, <laughs> with kosher wine? Lo- location, location. Uh, the majority of the Jews in the beginning of the 19th century, no, 1920th century were based in New York. And the Concord grape in upstate New York was the easiest to reach and make a kosher wine. Uh-huh. Okay. So that my my hit my, I'm again not saying a historical fact, but my understanding is that's why kosher wine got associated with a very sweet wine right. based on the New York Concord grape. And once so, they developed more personality and like kind of saying since the 80s, hey, we can actually make kosher wine in California. We can make kosher wine in France. We can make kosher wine. Israel has a booming wine industry as well today. I think you know some of the top you know, awards. So there really is a beautiful market today of, of, of kosher wines, you know, for the, any right. palate, for any, but that, that myth is still out there, that Passover, you have to have Manchevitz. <laughs> yeah. Well, hang on. That's, that's not just a myth because <laughs> look, I've run a kosher restaurant and I have these dry, beautiful wines on the wall and in the, in the wine refrigerator for the white wines. And when it comes to um, keeping and serving sake, um, they wanted sweet sakes, and if the, when it came to the white wines, they wanted the sweeter white wines. So what's happened is the Jewish tradition of drinking wine is it's really split right down the middle where you've got the traditionalists who want a sweeter wine, mm-hmm. even if it's in a nicer bottle and it's not Manischewitz. <laughs> you know, there's this brand called Bartanura, and it's sweet wine after sweet wine after sweet wine. Even their Pinot Grigio, I think, has got to have a few a few grams of sugar in it. Oh, man. Oh. Uh, but then there's also this these other fine dry wines that are that that would sit next to any wine in in the world as a as a really beautiful wine one of the reasons that i wanted to have this conversation otherwise that other than the fact i just love to learn about food and wine which to me is you know so much fun to sit with people who know more about it than i do but it's because you know look if somebody keeps kosher they already know these rules they don't need to listen to this podcast but a lot of people have friends and they don't know the degree to what they to which they keep kosher they don't know what the rules are what they can cook when they come over for dinner what restaurants they can go out to and that's really what i'm trying to educate people so more of us can go out and dine together and have a good time so um I, again, my personal experiences was I I had a lot of friends who kept kosher for the high holidays. Very few, except um, some of the Hasidim that I was friendly with, who were, of course, kosher year-round. But very few of my other friends were kosher year-round. So how is being kosher observed within the Jewish community? And what levels are there? And then how should I feel about inviting somebody out to a restaurant or cooking for them in my home? I know that's a lot that I threw at you, but I'm hoping you could give give us Goyim a little primer in how we can be, be better neighbors. I think like, like Ken said, and really there's a lot, obviously in the Orthodox world, like I said, the Hasidic world, they'll be kosher to the strict level at home, on the road, on vacation, etc., when you go to the broader Jewish community, you'll find various different levels of kosher. You have people that are kosher at home. You know, they keep a kosher kitchen in their house. When they dine out, they're, you know, they, they, they do a little bit less than that. Mm-hmm. Some people will do, even when they dine out, so they won't order pork or shellfish in any restaurant. And that's their way of keeping kosher. You have, I'm sure, like, you know, and you have other people that will only eat kosher cuts of meat, although it might not be an actual kosher cow, but they'll only stick, let's say, to, you know, to beef and to chicken, mm-hmm. to put, you know, to kosher animals, even though it wasn't slaughtered, you know, the kosher way. So you have a broad spe- spectrum of, of kosher. So let me give titles to that. The first one that's V just m- mentioned is kosher home, unkosher belly. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Second one is kosher home, kosher belly. That's all the time. But then there's if you're willing to eat beef and chicken, as he mentioned, that's not not kosher, but it's it's not a prohibited animal, just not killed in the appropriate way. Then you would be considered kosher style. Okay. Whoa. So when someone comes to your house, ask them if they say they're kosher. Are you kosher style or are you orthodox kosher? And then the question is, is there's somewhere in the middle where you have people who are orthodox kosher, 
but they live in a assimilated life. So they know they're going to be going to restaurants that are not kosher. And so what they'll do is they'll order food that is parv. Parv is somewhere between meat and dairy. It's neither category. So a salad or um, fish is considered parv. So they'll have a, a Caesar salad with a piece of salmon over the top. Mm -hmm. Very popular oh. with this type of, of observant moderately kosher person right they're not orthodox kosher because they're using plates and silverware that has been used to make i don't know pork salad or whatever you know yeah. a pork and that's pork a perfect salad. lead into my next question i have heard growing up about people who keep two sets of plates dishes in their homes uh, i don't think any of my friends ever did that um I'd, I'd heard stories about people i remember people going up to the catskills and telling me about plates that had a certain stripe around them whether they were from the kosher or whether from the meat and or dairy dishwasher the meat or dairy cupboard uh, are those just rumors or is that the way people keep kosher I think both of us we got both do. separate really? wow. meat and dairy dishes at home. So in my, you know, if, if we came to my home, we have a dairy side and a meat side in in our kitchen, and we we do have uh, and we do maintain a separate wow. separate kitchen for both meat and milk. Okay. Which, Good. Which then leads into all this stuff we've talked about. How does it manifest itself here at Ch Kosher Chinglish and on the other and side? And on the other side. Yeah. It's a good question. I think we should just really quickly take a step back and say, because I'm realizing now that we didn't explain to be kosher or to have a kosher dish on the table. What goes into it is you have to start with the way the animal, well, you have to select the right animal. Yeah. Mm. Then you have to have to um, harvest the animal in the right way. And it's a way that's meant to be painless and respectful to the animal. <clears throat> um, it also, um, then it has to be supervised. It has to be bled correctly. It has to be treated and delivered all under supervision to our restaurant. Can I throw an interesting fact in? Please. Everyone has gone to the grocery store and you see kosher salt. Mm -hmm. And Wait, is table salt not kosher? It's only those big flakes that are kosher salt? And the answer is like what Ken is referring to, the animal has to be bled correctly. They use, the, the kosher salt comes from, in the preparation of the meat, we're, not, we're prohibited from consuming the blood of life. So the animals are, all kosher animals and chicken are salted after the slaughter to draw out the blood. And that salting process, they use the kosher salt that chefs love today mm -hmm. to use the bigger flakes to do that salting and that's where the whole kosher salt comes okay. from just an fyi no very yeah. cool so so just you know that's when you go into grocery see kosher now table salt is also yeah. kosher <laughs> but for the salting process they're using those bigger flakes and so when you're starting with a kosher piece of meat you're always starting with a higher sodium content hmm. even though that's rinsed off before the meat is sold you know saying it, the animal is slaughtered and, yeah. and salted but it's 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 washed off Again, it has a higher sodium. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Ken. By, by the way, along those lines, what that means is that you can have a kosher steak that is medium rare. Now, I grew up, every Jewish person, they made their hamburgers into hockey pucks and their steaks <laughs> into, yeah. into, into paperweights. It was awful. A kosher steak that comes to the kitchen is kosher. There's no more blood in it. Mm -hmm. Okay, there are there are various fluids that are in the in in the animal and in in the muscle. It's not blood. You are allowed to have a medium rare steak. I had one last night, and I'm as kosher today. One hundred percent. One hundred. The the blood of life that comes out during the slaughter. That's what's removed with the salting. The blood right. that you you know the red fluid or that you see that was inside the flesh does not make that steak or that chicken. So kosher steak tartare. Okay. Can be done. Could be done. Hard, hard to do because it's going to be a little salty. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, for example, when I hold wanna, off on the capers and the anchovies. <laughs> but when I cook a kosher duck, you have to soak that duck for a long time, or a kosher s skirt steak. They, those two cuts specifically need to be soaked in water several times to draw the salt out of it. Okay. Um, so we've discussed what it takes to, to be a kosher kitchen, a little bit above what it means to, to maintain a kosher restaurant. You also then I have to keep a rabbi on staff to make sure everything's kosher. Oh, I, I swear I wasn't going to make that joke, but I apologize. <laughs> um, but, but yes, you have to keep somebody around to yeah. make sure, right? And, is, and it's certified. Is there a universal certification? Is there a, you know... There's 
over a thousand different certifying agencies today in in the world. I mean, just we live in a free you know country. Any person can legally, for example, if we talk United States law, you can open up a, a restaurant tomorrow and call yourself kosher, and no one can do anything about that. As long as you you say I have my you know I'm kosher mm-hmm. to the way I understand kosher, and legally no one can do anything about. If you said you had X supervision then ex-supervision can, you know, stop you from using their name if you right. didn't legitimately have their supervision. So the, the, the kosher supervisor is checking in the product, washing the vegetables, et cetera, et cetera. So within the casino world, I mean, and I ask because Las Vegas, most special occasions, a lot of special occasions, people want to go to a casino, they want to go to a well-known hall. Is it just it's not a doable thing to bring somebody like yourself in and to certify that that they can do a kosher banquet for you or can they do those things? Do you know? I I do that all the time. The Venetian Hotel and the Four Seasons both maintain a kosher kitchen. Okay. But it's usually closed. And when they have a kosher event, they call in the supervising agency and they'll open the kosher kitchen and produce that event. And, And then it'll be done kosher. Ken, how do you, and I want to hit a couple last things because I can't believe how great, how well the time's flying here, but we are running out. Um, how do you deal with the fact, and I, I, I think I know the answer, but if somebody is eating on the other side, the non-kosher side, and they have somebody in their party that keeps kosher, I believe that you will serve the kosher cuisine to them over there, but there's something with the, the way that you serve it? We do, and it's a nice segue from what we were talking about because it's simply delivery. So when we cook our kosher food here on the kosher chinglish restaurant before whether it's going to the cantonese wine bar next door or if it's going to some of our guests when we cater an event down at at bellagio if someone rents a suite at bellagio we'll go down and we'll set up uh kosher trays of food for them as a catering event that you would have at your own home Mm -hmm. and the idea is that the minute we package it up we we close it we seal it and we have it certified by our mashkiach Mishkiach is the term for the person who works in the kitchen to supervise it. And so Tzvi here is our Vad who supervises our Mishkiach and Mishkicha, male and female. <clears throat> and so those people seal up our packages, our food, and the seal gets broken in front of whoever the kosher guest is. So the minute it leaves our restaurant, it's leaving as a perfectly kosher dish. And as long as those people either break the seal themselves or see the seal being broken in front of them, they are confident and comfortable. Right. And so when someone is over at our Cantonese wine bar, which is not a kosher restaurant, and let's say it's two people who are kosher with a group of four other people who are not kosher. And so they'll order their pork or their duck or whatever it is they're going to have. And the kosher people will order from our kosher kitchen. And it'll be delivered as a to-go item okay. in our to-go boxes, which are actually very nice to eat out of. the little black trays with a clear lid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can eat out of that or we'll put it onto paper plates. And those people eat with, a, with the same wooden chopsticks because they're disposable right. and they're <laughs> brand new every time. Cool. And I, I just want to stress for people that are maybe getting a little bit confused. It is a completely separate establishment, Kosher Chinglish. There is, it's a completely separate kitchen, separate walks, separate chefs. So it's the integrity of the, the highest standard of kosher. Ken and Kitty have gone out of their way to, to accommodate, to be you know, the strictest level of kosher for everyone to feel comfortable to eat it. Like he said, so it, when it leaves this place, it leaves it sealed to accommodate the guest that is, that is outside and, and eating it. Okay, and that is a perfect segue to what's probably going to be the last topic, and it's going to be a bit of a lightning round topic. Great kosher restaurants in Las Vegas. How is the scene for dining out and and keeping kosher in Las Vegas? Do we have a wide variety? Is it all Eastern European and Russian food? Is it all Middle Eastern food? There are Jews everywhere. Um, One of my friends once did for his daughter's bat mitzvah. He had great chefs of Las Vegas cook the kosher cuisine of their native lands or of of the, the countries they represent. So I know that there's a a variety of people who keep kosher. How's that represented in Las Vegas restaurants? Well, here's a shout out to a bunch of really good restaurants. Oren does a really nice shawarma over here at Vegas Shawarma. Ariella does a kosher uh, pizza, so Ariella's pizza. 
Um, and then there's burnt offerings, which does Eastern European food like your grandma that deli, used to make. That, yeah. uh, that corned beef. And she just got a, a bar, bar rescue, restaurant rescue, one she, of the one of those shows. What, I don't remember which one she was on, but she was just on one. She's a really nice woman. Yeah, a- uh, Alexandra is a really nice woman. Then, then you go down to some of the older, more established ones, which is Jerusalem Grill or King Solomon's Table. And those are Middle Eastern foods. Um, and then there's hummus, Vegas, you know, right next to that, um, uh, right on Sahara where the, you know, the, what is that gold, golden steer Yeah. right next door to the golden steer. You got a place called hummus Vegas. Mm-hmm. People come from all over for their falafel, their shawarma. Really? Because yeah. you know, Atlantic Avenue, Brooklyn, I used to live yeah. on Pacific street right over from Atlantic Avenue, Brooklyn. That was the best falafel I ever had there. So I'm, I'm looking for really good falafel. There, <laughs> Try it out. There used to be a falafel place in town called Sababa and Rami used yeah, to. Sababa yeah. used to be so yeah. good. It was yeah. great falafel, but it just, they had their pickles came in from Israel yeah. actually. Yeah. Right. And they, they, <laughs> Yeah, the label was yeah um, now it has by the way been replaced by Legends Oysters Bar which is a fantastic restaurant but not kosher um. <laughs> unfortunately COVID did hit us we did lose Haifa and we did lose Ace of Steaks and uh, Anis Tapas grilled three kosher places that did close down but Mother Falafel just went kosher all the way in the southwest on Rainbow in the 215 is, is another falafel almost place. We'll have to go check that out. Awesome. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Happy Hanukkah. Um, th- thanks for the education. Uh, hopefully um, it'll help people eat out with their friends a bit more often. This is Food and Loathing. this is the time of the show when we would normally turn to the news of the week. And um, the news of this week has been a little rough. Um, I was away on Thanksgiving weekend when I saw a Facebook post by um, Chris Connors, who is joining us right now from from Utah, telling us that um, that a beloved friend and chef of the Las Vegas food scene, Chris Heron, had died suddenly and unexpectedly. Um, I'm joined right now by Chris, who was his partner in several ventures, as well as with Chris Palmieri of Naked City Pizza and Chris Decker of Metro Pizza, two of the many people who, t- who went online this weekend to just post about what a loss this has been to our community. Um, I appreciate it, guys, coming together on really short notice to talk about this. I could not imagine doing a podcast in the wake of this news and not talking a little bit about how important Chris Heron was to our scene and will continue to be probably for years to come. And I think it's we're going to talk a bit about the history and what he did. But first, um, Chris Connors, and I'm going to keep saying Chris to everybody, so I'm going to say your last names. Chris Connors, um, could you uh, just bring us up to speed? I don't want to get too graphic or too into detail, but was this, we, we understand that, that he died the evening before Thanksgiving, and this was really unexpected to everybody that I knew who heard the news. Was this unexpected to you in Utah working with him? Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, Chris, Chris was a good friend of mine, uh, for 12 or so years. And, um, you know, we've, we, we always had deep conversations about, uh, about life in general, not only food, but life. And, uh, you know, he always mentioned that he, he was, he had type one diabetes for 30 plus years. He was, he was diagnosed diabetic when he was, uh, 11 years old and, uh, he passed away at 45. Um, and, and, you know, recently um he was having a little bit of uh trouble with his with his blood sugar levels um he did get uh a little bit of a like a touch of a cold um he was a little sick he was tested for covid that came back negative um and he just he wasn't feeling well um and getting getting chris out of the kitchen was like was like pulling a wisdom tooth you know he just loved being in there and um you know he, he was finally getting some rest he was getting better um and we didn't really think too much of it because it, it wasn't really we didn't see it as that serious but he he did make a couple comments to me he's like hey i'm gonna make a you know i'm gonna make a an appointment with a doctor um just to get my blood sugars right because they're kind of all over the place right now so that's not that's not good for me and i was like yeah you know go right ahead like take time off whatever you need to do go in the emergency whatever um, and, uh, you know, bakery in the bakery business right before Thanksgiving, as we all know, is, is crazy time. 
um, baking pies and all that kind of stuff. And, and we were just in the weeds for that whole week, um, baking pies, cakes, um, all the pastry that Chris is known for. And, um, you know, he was, he was working. He wasn't anything abnormal for him. Um, you know, he, I didn't even have a schedule for Chris. Like we didn't even have a schedule. He just came in whenever he wanted to come in. Um, and, and, gave away stuff whenever he wanted to come in and give away stuff. Like we had that relationship. I just, I trusted the guy with my life. I mean, you know, he was, he was, I called him St. Christopher, you know, because he loved, uh, he loved being in there. He loved giving away his bread and all that kind of stuff. And then he, uh, he, he felt a little ill a a day or two before. Um, and he just said, Hey, I'm going to take the rest of the day off and uh, great, you know, go right ahead. And, um, and then on, on Tuesday, um, you know, he, he went home at, at six, I told him to get out of there at two. He ended up working an extra four hours, just doing Dutch apple pies. He was giving away Dutch apple pies, uh, for, um, some, a group of people that he knew. Um, and then someone that he was actually going to go to Thanksgiving dinner with. Um, and that's, that's, that's the last time I saw him alive. It was making Dutch apple pies. Wow. And, you know, I hear you talk about how I love to give things away. And I'll never forget the first time I went over to see Bread and Butter. And we're about to start talking about Bread and Butter. But he had said to me, he's, he had made deliveries to everyone in that office complex. Like, that was his way of, yeah. of welcoming people to the neighborhood. Or welcoming himself to their neighborhood was just showing up with baked goods, which I guess made him very popular with people um, pretty quickly. Um, and you tell me, just tell everybody that's listening where your bakery is with Chris. Because this is not a Las Vegas business. Chris has been out of Las Vegas for a little while. And we're going to get back to his Vegas legacy in a minute. But just so people know where you are. Yeah, so we're located in uh, downtown St. George, Utah. And uh, one of the things that, that why we chose St. George is I, I, I'm from Las Vegas. And I just recently moved to St. George. And, and uh, one of the reasons I, I did move to St. George is because of Chris. Because he said, you know... I don't know if I want to do a bakery anymore in Las Vegas, but I'll, I want to do it close by. And I said, well, what about St. George? It's a cool little community, you know? And he goes, okay, yeah, I'll do it in St. George. And literally, the, it's the only reason we created Farmstead Bakeries, because we knew Chris was on board with it. And, um, I mean, the, the only reason Farmstead Bakery is is what it is today. I mean, we've been open for nine months. Business has been great. And that's all due to Chris. I mean, he... You know, even today, people come in by and people are our, our customers are literally I mean, they're crying. They've only known him for eight months, you know, and uh, it's always tough to break the news to, to people like that. But, you know, there are six or seven people today I had to console because, uh, you know, because of the news. I mean, he just had a, a, a great it just he was just a beautiful person and had a, a positive effect on everyone. Yeah, he was. And I think, and by the way, Chris uh, Connors, I know that you may have to drop off the call at some point. If you do it any time, no worries. But as long as you're here, you can jump in at any time. Um, I want to give back to people because I think there's a problem in Las Vegas is we do tend to forget our history. We forget, we tear down what, what is gone and we forget the, the groundwork and the, the giants whose shoulders that, that, you, that many of the today's chefs are standing on. And the people that I'm sitting with right now are among those giants. Chris Heron was among those giants. Um, and Chris Heron, just to give you a little background, I probably first came in contact with him when he was with um, the Cirque and Chirco, its sister restaurant. He then went over to Bouchon. He helped open the bakery at Bouchon. He was there for seven years. Um, I was just re-listening to my interview with him that I did on one of my old web TV shows. And... Um, it was just great hearing his voice, I have to say, and that you can find that on my Facebook page. But it, we, we were talking that at the time, and I also picked up the first, I picked up my book, my old book, Eating Las Vegas, to see when bread and butter showed up in that book. And it was not until the 2013 edition, the third edition. And at the time, we had 50 essential restaurants. Only 14 of them were non-casino restaurants. We had to work really hard to find non-casino restaurants to put into our book. Bread and Butter was one that Max Jacobs and John Curtis and I all loved. We adored it. Um, and I was listening to this podcast. 
podcast. And I remember at those days, I was saying, there's a new generation of chefs out there. There's Chris Heron, Chris Palmieri, who's with me right now, who had just left um, the strip and was doing his own things with Naked City Pizza. Um, but what I remembered listening to this first was that originally Chris Decker, who is joining with us, had worked with him in a bakery truck called Lulu's on the Move. And so I'm going to ask both of you to tell me how, how you came in contact with Chris Heron and what it was like in those days for somebody to leave Bouchon and first do a bakery food truck in a town where people say you can't get good baked goods. And also to open a restaurant at a time, Chris Palmieri, when you were trying to open a restaurant on your own, a pizza place, what was the scene like, gentlemen? And what was Chris's attitude going in to do what people thought couldn't be done? It was kind of crazy back then. You know, I mean, we were all on the strip and me and Chris met while he was still at Bouchon and I was still at the MGM at Diego. Um, And then, you know, corporate life didn't work out for me so well. So... When I eventually left, I mean, I didn't start right away. I started like 2009. I didn't even have enough money to open a pizzeria. I opened a hot dog cart, you know, just like he opened a bakery truck. So it was kind of crazy, but we just kind of wanted to do our own thing. And then little by little, you started to see Las Vegas starting to support it. You know, when we opened the sandwich shop, when Chris got the bakery, when we got Naked City. And it was, we, me and Chris talked about it a lot of times. Uh, you can kind of see a change, like chefs were leaving the strip and going into neighborhoods and opening places, you know, whether it was Chinatown or Henderson or wherever, it was, seemed to be a shift. And uh, it was kind of cool to begin, be at the beginning somewhat of that, you know, chefs leaving. Obviously, like somebody like Metro's been here much longer, but there was just seemed to be like the shift of chefs, you know, leaving well-established high-end restaurants on the strip and wanting to do their own thing, which was awesome. And, uh, you know, Chris and I knew each other a little bit, but then when I opened Naked City, he just kind of started showing up more and more and more, and then, like, <laughs> helping here and there, and then, you know, we just became really great friends, and then, you know, when we got on to Diners, Divers, and Dives, he uh, was right there kind of preparing me, going, this is how you got to scale up, and this is, you know, like, and that was kind of how our friendship always worked throughout the years, like, when he closed Bread and Butter, uh, he called me the night before they closed and he said, look, I'm closing. If you want anything, get a U-Haul, come down here, give me a little bit of money, take whatever you want, just to help support us, you know, with Naked City. And then he's like, hire one guy from here, one of my bakers, Ramirez. So I did. And eventually Ramirez worked for me for seven years, now opened up his own place. And I've, throughout the course of that time, I've had five of his family members work for me. Two of them still work for me. Husband and wife make all our dough. You know, so it's just, Chris also recommended a friend of his from Bouchon, Megan, who was a great cook for me for years. So it's like, he's the guy who would call me randomly and say, hey, hire this guy, cause, or this girl. And because I didn't even question, the next day they were hired, you know, or call me with random ideas and we try them all, so. Um, so Chris Decker, you know, again, I had forgotten about Lulu's on the move, but that is actually listening back to my old interview. I remember that's the first time I had judged a food truck battle. It was Sloppy Joe's, Jolie Menina versus Lulu's on the move. Um, you guys at Lulu's had made um, it was a root beer float with chocolate covered bacon, I think was your was your entry. And I was the only judge who liked it. Um, <laughs> and Chris was really happy that I had liked it at the time. Um, but but Mr. Decker, how did Lulu's on the move come about? And what was Chris's mindset in those early days when, like I said, there's we can't say it enough how nobody was doing that shit. Nobody yeah, was no. leaving Bouchon to open. And there was Sheridan Sue was also out there. There There's a very small, small select group of people. Yeah, so it's really funny, like ironically funny, how we ended up here at this Metro Pizza because this is where I met Chris. Um, yeah, we are recording this segment out of Metro Pizza. Yeah, and you know, this is where we prepped everything for Lulu's on the move. There's a chalkboard wall on the walk-in freezer down there that he did, you know, so, and that's where we would write all our ideas on and everything. And, um, you know, for him in, in my life, he was the first chef, I guess, that really paid attention to us. That was before, like, the pizza guys were, like, of any importance at all, you know. And even if they are important now, but that he made you feel like you were a superstar no matter what. And uh, 
you know, when I had posted, when he passed, I posted that, that card that he wrote me and he sent it here. He's like, you know, we came and we really enjoyed it and everything. And if you ever need anything, just give me a call. And I think that's just how he was. He was just a very, very super giving person. And, you know, that led to me catering their all staff meal at Bouchon and with Thomas Keller there and everything. And it was kind of, it was interesting. Like I was just a pizza maker, you know, I didn't know anybody or know anything really just other than what I was doing. And he introduced me to like a whole other world. And then we just got talking and talking and talking. And he was saying he was going to leave there. And I was like, well, we're going to open a bakery. And, you know, that was, there was all kinds of construction issues at the time with, with us building the new restaurant. So I was like, well, let's get a food truck and we'll introduce the bakery that way. And he was into it. And it, was, it really was, and I mentioned that in my post too, it really was like a love-hate relationship with that truck. We had so many issues, like we would just load up with everything and the truck wouldn't start or like we couldn't get the fryers lit. There was always something, you know, and we, uh, we always went through that and we always laughed. And, um, you know, I, I just can't thank him enough for, for being such a beautiful person. I think back when we got that truck and it was just a mess and he called a whole bunch of guys from Bouchon to come over and help us clean it out. <laughs> And like he, he was just so connected. Like Chris uh, Palmieri just said, he was like, anytime you needed something, he would have like ten different guys for anything that you needed, or girls, or whatever. Just he, he just loved building relationships, and I think that goes back to what you were saying and what Chris was, Chris Connors was saying before with the apple pies and giving away. Like that was his introduction, and people don't forget those things. You know, they hold on to that stuff yeah. forever. You know, it's it's really important, and he was the king of that. Yeah, yeah. and I think um, you know, and I'm. I'm Bummed. We were hoping to have Brian Howard here today, and he, Brian had said he's uh, not feeling his best right now. But he had said some wonderful things on Facebook about him as well. But I, I, I wanted to ask him because I think that generation of the Brian Howard chefs who were able to leave the strip and do things were very much inspired by the Chris Palmieri's, by the C Chris Herons, by the Sheridan Sues, by that that really that first group. And I said on Facebook that it wasn't so much a first wave as, and maybe I was being a little poetic, but um, but as some you know brill brilliantly polished pebbles skimming across the sea and everywhere they hit a, a, a waves would emanate from them and I think you guys were all doing that at the time and there was this breaking down of walls it was no longer strip versus non-strip it was no longer pizza guy versus baker versus fine dining chef and I I do think that Chris as much if not more than anybody else contributed to that idea of creating a culinary community and also Jolie Menina who we've mentioned and there's certainly many others that were sure. out there but this was this was before it was an established path that you could do yeah. this I think Vegas is unique man like you know if you go to New York City everything is cut through you know like the pizza guys versus the other pizza guys or restaurant versus restaurant like Vegas, I think, is much similar to Chris's personality. And maybe it was because, you know, it started somewhat with him. But, like, there's collaboration between, you know, Naked City Pizza and Metro Pizza. Like, you're not going to get that in a lot of different cities. Like, it's so competitive and so at each other's throat. Here, you know, like, we've worked with 100 different independent restaurants over the last 10 years, you know, in different sections of the community. And I think, like, Vegas encompasses kind of what Chris was all about. Like, you know, he just... He loved everybody. He wanted to help anybody he could. You know, he meet you. He give you a pizza. He give you, you know, whatever. You know, yeah. like just as an introduction. I think Vegas. You know, it's not all the time. Not every single place, but like a majority of it, I think, is a huge reflection of like what Chris's personality was. And I, I do hope that younger chefs who may not have been around for that time are are listening to this. And I and I hope that they're they're getting an, an idea that that's what that built what we have today is people who are willing to share that way and people who are willing to collaborate. I, listening back to that early interview with him, um, one of my viewers had sent a question that said, well, where did you get your investors? And he said, Visa, Discover, American <laughs> Express, and um, uh, this place is going to be open for as long as I can keep avoiding their calls, right? And at for the me, time, it was the bank of dad. So. Yeah, and he also talked about his father cashing in his 401k and himself cashing in his 401k. Um, because there was really, it was not a world where people were out there looking to invest in no. chefs, right? <laughs> not back then. And especially, like you said, we, we didn't shoot for, you know, 100 seat restaurants. We were, you know, he opened a truck and then a small bakery and I opened a hot dog cart and a little sailing shop with no seats, you know, and eventually a pizzeria inside of a bar. You know, we, we didn't need huge investments, but nobody was really like, Hey, let's go open this up. You know, like it. We grinded and we did what we had to do and, you know, 
years later, you know, I'm, we're all still there. One of the one of the things that Chris would would do at the bakery once I started working with him, um, you know, every day for the last year, um, he would just leave with a box of pastry, and I'm like, "Where are you going?" He's like, oh, "I'm gonna go make some friends." <laughs> and before and before you knew you know it, I mean, I there were more people. I mean, he was he was treated like a celebrity almost. Like people would come in and just ask for him, and then he'd give him a uh, you know a baguette or. Uh, uh, some ciabatta or something like that, but he would oh he would do that every day, and and he really changed my mindset of being a restaurateur. I always I was always I always had the mindset of like, you know, the the other restaurants competition they're gonna steal your your customers or whatever. I I I had that mindset, and when I was young and I owned my first restaurant and I opened it up with nothing, you know, and and I was just like him, and he's like, hey. You know, we're all we're pretty much a community. You know, I mean, he he didn't tell me that specifically, but that's the way he acted. And I kind of took that. Now, my my whole mindset has changed because of him, because it it is you could be a whole community and and share customers and and be grateful for for what you have. And and we could all be successful together. Right. Uh, His decision to go to Utah, he said he wanted to be close to Las Vegas. Um, Do you know, any of you guys know why he decided to kind of give up on Henderson and and to travel the world and then settle back up in Utah as opposed to coming back here? You know, with with me having a lot of conversations with him, I don't know about um, the other Chris's, but he knew he was kind of living on borrowed time. Um, and he told me that many times. And he he he's he said, you know, he was blind in his left eye. Um, because of diabetes, um, and that was just recent. And then the recent news that he he told me was he had about two to three years before he went totally blind because of his diabetes. And he was like, "Man, I just wanted to travel. I I saw everything in the in the U.S. I took road trips, and and our deal was like, you know, Chris was like, "Hey, give me give me four months off a year." And at the very beginning, you try to wrap your head around that. And I just knew he was such a good teacher and he knew how to bring people together. And he was so inspirational in that in that aspect. I was like, yeah, take whatever time off you want. You know, so he took two months off in July and August. And then he was he was supposed to take two months off in January and February and go help a friend in Mexico that I think worked with him at Bakery Nouveau in Seattle. Um, You know, and he was just always visiting friends. And he would bring people together like half of my relationships in Las Vegas from the foodie standpoint, from from uh, food operators and chefs are because of Chris. Yeah. You know, Brian Howard, uh, the two Chris's here, you know, I mean, all the all these all these guys I would have never met uh, if it wasn't for Chris. Yeah, I mean, basically along the same strain, like I asked him when he called me, you know, because he had meat and three at the same time, too. And I had done a pop-up there and everything. Right, yeah. He opened a second restaurant right next to Bread and Butter. And they seemed successful. And I was like, why the hell are you closing? Like, you know what I mean? And he basically just said, like, eh, I just want to travel around. He goes, I want to see all the states. So that's what he did, you know. And he would just randomly, like, text me or email or Facebook, whatever. One day I get a text. He's like, I hadn't heard from him in, like, a month and a half. So I'm in Buffalo. Where should I go? <laughs> like just random, and I, you know, rattled off like ten places, and you went in every place. And I told him, and you know, like I think that at that time, you know, I don't know if he knew more then, you know, about what was coming, but yeah, he just wanted to travel around, see everything, and go to different bakeries, go to different restaurants, go to different states, like which is, yeah. I'm envious of. Well. Um, look, I want to thank all you guys for being here. I really did think it was important that we at least share some stories about him. Um, look, Chris Connors, if you're still there, before I say my last few things, could you tell us about memorial services? Yeah, so we're having a memorial service December 13th at 5.30 at Farmstead Bakery in St. George, Utah. Um, and then we're having a memorial service December 14th at 5.30 p.m., uh, at Megusta Tacos in the district in Green Valley. Um, and, you know, it, it's basically going to be a memorial service, uh, it, hopefully, to, like, Chris's personality. I mean, bring whatever you want. If you want to bring food, bring food. If you want to bring a drink, bring a drink. You know, we, we always made fun of him in the bakery because whenever we'd ask something, someone would have some random 
random uh, thing they'd ask, hey, can you make meat pies? And he'd be like, uh, sure. And he'd always <laughs> say sure. He would just say sure, no matter what. Like, it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter what it was. He would just say sure. So that's kind of his personality. Just bring whatever you want, um, you know, and let's let's continue his legacy by meeting new people and, and forming new relationships because that's what that guy was all about, man. He For was sure. so special. Yeah, I'm and, just going to miss him. And, you know, one thing I remembered today was that he, he came on to my, um, my web show, which I did for about a year. We had, you know, maybe 50 episodes. And he came on episode 18 and said, I love what you're doing. What does it take to be a sponsor? Right. And we're like, well, we're not really doing that. And he said, hey, let me be a sponsor. And he signed on and became a sponsor because he wanted to support the community. Right. And that was amazing. And I just always saw him. You know, you guys are telling stories. I, I don't think there would be the kind of brunch scene there is in Henderson right now. It wouldn't have established as quickly without bread and butter. I don't think we'd have chefs as willing to take a jump off of the strip. And I don't think we'd have the investors who might be there to support them right now if Chris hadn't done it completely on his own. And also, again, I don't want to belittle the many other, the handful of other people like Chris Palmieri and Chris Decker and all the others who have done it. But th th those are the things that I think he's left us with. Guys, anything else because that, that this next generation can take from remembering what this guy did and how he made this a better city for food. I mean, I mean, first, keep laughing. I mean, that's one thing I'll always remember about Chris. Like, we were always <laughs> laughed. I mean, no matter what, we, you know, something would be on fire and we would start laughing, you know. And he, he, a really funny story, he told me that he was conceived over a bottle of Ripple in a fight. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'll never forget that, you know. And it was just so funny how he just went through life. He's like, I'm not even supposed to be here. It's all because all of a bottle of Ripple in a fight. <laughs> and, like, it's just, like, that's his whole life, man. And uh, I, I am really going to miss him. And I, I can't thank him enough for everything he's done. He always – one thing I'm grateful for is he knew how I felt about him. And, uh, and uh, that will make me rest a little easier. Sure. Yeah, I'd say – the biggest thing that younger generation of cooks and chefs could do is try and live how that dude lived, man. Like, it's not a competition with your small business owners and your other restaurants. It's collaboration and fun and enjoy each other, help each other, you know. I need rolls. I can call Chris's shop and buy them from him rather than a commercial baker or something. Support the little guys, man. Just have fun. And the one thing I would say that I'm going to try and take more advantage of now is always go for the adventure. Chris always went for the adventure, man, for whether sure. it was going to Little Rock or Buffalo or whatever, Seattle. Like, I'm going to try and do that more in my own life now. Great. Well, I want to thank everybody for doing this on really short notice so that we could get this out there. Rich and I, Rich Johnson and I are going to be back momentarily with just a couple more bits of news, hopefully some happier news. And um, I'm going to do my cannabis edibles review as always. So stick around. This is Food and Loathing. Okay, so as I noted at the top of the show, we're going to do an abbreviated version of the news this week since we wanted to have time to discuss Chris Heron's legacy at length. There are a couple of things you need to know. First up, Buddy Velastro is preparing to open another Las Vegas restaurant. The Cake Boss already operates Buddy V's Ristorante as well as Carlo's Bakery in the Venetian Palazzo and Pizza Cake in Harris and a bunch of cake slice vending machines scattered about town. Next up, for the only chef I've ever known to impale his hand on a bowling pin setting machine and recover, an East Coast deli called the Boss Cafe at the Link. It'll be specializing in sandwiches, pizza, baked goods, and a house-made mozzarella bar. Chef Brian Forgione will helm the new restaurant, which is set to open in early 2022. Next in the news, Bloom has closed its doors in Henderson. The place had made a name for itself as an off-strip celebrity hangout during COVID. It was kind of the go-to spot for athletes and the beautiful people and the other uber-rich residents of Anthem in those Henderson Hills. That all came to an end, apparently, after the fire marshal shut them down during some sort of stripper auditions. Honestly, you can get more info on that over at Eater Vegas, which also relies on some reporting by TMZ. There are only a couple of things I can tell you firsthand. First, an announcement on the restaurant's website says that they are anticipating, quote, a new larger location in Las Vegas to an area more conducive to nightlife. Um, second, I spoke to Chef Antonio Nunez, and he told me that he is no longer associated with the restaurant. 
And third, someone close to the owners tells me that they actually seem excited about the chance to find a more appropriate location for what they want to do. So um, for more on the details of how they got shut down, I'm just going to direct you over to Eater or TMZ. Also on the local front, our friend Gio Morrow of Pizzeria Manzu has opened a second location for his other pizza concept, Northtown's Old School Pizzeria. The new spot is located at 1930 Rock Springs Drive, which is right at that intersection of Lake Mead Boulevard and Rainbow by the on-ramps for US-95. Order a pizza through December 5th and you'll get a free order of garlic knots. Also, I just got a heads up from my friends at the Silverton informing me that after being closed for over a year, the Twin Creek Steakhouse has reopened. I'm told that the dining room has gotten a facelift, while chefs Ashley Archer and Jamie Pepe have overhauled the menu. Some of the more intriguing dishes, at least from the press release, are the truffled short rib tortellini with blue cheese foam, crab and lobster louis with tomato jam and diced egg and a 40 ounce tomahawk for two with lobster mashed potatoes and truffle butter i'm also excited to hear they've added some bourbon flights to the menu i'm told they'll be inviting the media in next month for a tasting although honestly i'm not sure i can wait i may have to head in on my own before that if you do the same make sure to check out the holiday themed bad elf pop-up inside the silverton shady grove lounge while you're there santa's naughty helpers will be partying there nightly through january 2nd and finally now it's time for my weekly cannabis edibles review um yes i'm on my own and i'm recording this in the morning so oh that is not a recipe for a great day but i picked up these um these tasted toasted s'mores from encore edibles and um, I got them over at Zen, Zen Leaf um, Dispensary. I think it was 20 bucks for 10 of them, so it's pretty decent. 10 milligrams of THC a pop. Um, I opened them up. They've got the same annoying Ziploc bag that you're used to seeing in other, um, other things. But once you get in there, these are all individually wrapped. So that's kind of cool for those of you who don't pop more than 10 milligrams at a time. And, you know, a lot of times in those larger candy bars, you open them up. It's nice that you can tear off the 10 milligram squares. But, you know, if you're only eating a couple of those a week, it could get a little funky, <laughs> leaving the chocolate lying around for a while. So for you, those of you who eat slowly and consume edibles slowly, you're going to like the fact that these are all individually wrapped. They kind of look like these... Um, these cellophane things that some, I don't know, some of my grandmother would have had in a, in, in a jar next to um, butterscotches. And hey, what do I know? Maybe Granny was getting high. I don't know. I don't think so, though. I know my grandmother. It doesn't sound like something she would have been doing. Um, but these are kind of cool. So they are chocolate squares. Then they have the graham cracker kind of um, dust on the side, on one side with the marshmallows. They're 10 milligrams, but they're set up so that you can actually split them evenly in half and get a 5 milligram dose on either side. Um, I'm going to take a little less than that. As I said, it is the morning. Uh, a little bit dropped off, but it's yummy. Honestly, it almost tastes a bit like coffee, chocolate. Um, maybe it's that weed taste that mixing with the chocolate is making it. And it's a nice dark chocolate flavor, I should say. Um, you get a little bit from the graham cracker. You get a little, and it's supposed to be maple graham cracker. Honestly, I kind of can taste that in there. And um, some some marshmallows. So, Wow. And the more I eat these, I had one of these last night, and um, I liked it. I'm trying it again. I dig this a lot. So um, I like this. Congrats to my friends. I also like the way that they're put together. A couple weeks ago, Rick Moonen and I had a kind of s'more sandwich thing that we loved a lot. Um, the weird thing was I kept them around the house for a while, and they fell apart. The chocolate fell off. The, 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 um, they were using marshmallow glue to hold it together. It didn't quite work, so the chocolate fell off the pretzel. Um, that was a little weird. Uh, these, though, all in one nice bite-sized piece, well-packaged. Bravo. I am liking it. Thank you. Toasted S'mores, Encore Edibles. Um, yes, there you go. Thank you guys very much. And that's it for this episode of Food and Loathing. Thanks to all of our guests, Ken Heck and Rabbi Tzvi Bronstein. Hope I got it right that time. As well as Chris Palmieri, Chris Decker, and Chris Connors. Of course, rest in peace, Chris Herron. Next week's show is still a little bit up in the air as I have a couple of big meals scheduled with some big-name chefs. I'm going to need to see how they go before I know how much of it I'll be able to share with you. Keep your fingers crossed on that. And please tell a friend about Food and Loathing. Please say nice things about us, especially on Apple Podcasts. But either way, we want your feedback and your likes and your retweets. 
Find everything you need to know about that on my website, theneonmohawk.com. And of course, make sure you always stay hungry.